just double checking. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to DLN's Expert Access. We're going to take a closer look at important and relevant topics in the architecture and design industry led by leading experts. Today, the topic looks at the great wealth migration, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with right now, in partnership with DLN Partners Chubb. Before I hand things off to Joanna, I want to point out to everyone tuning in the Q&A button in the bottom of your platform. Please post any questions there and I'll uh, do my very best to get to them all. Um, now, I would like to introduce Chubb's Vice President, Head of Partnerships, Joanna McNamara, uh, to get things started. Uh, you probably have seen Joanna at our events and if you haven't, you have to make sure to go up and chat with her. Chubb is a very valuable partner for us and also very valuable to everybody in the industry. And uh, this isn't written in my notes, but I'm just going to say I was at a dinner the other night and everybody was talking about how uh, when push comes to shove, uh, Chubb is always the best um, insurance company because they always come to the rescue and, and cover, you know, the issues at hand. So I, that did come up completely organically. And I just, and it was actually from a DLN member. So I um, just wanted to point that out. Anyway, I'm going to turn this over to Joanna. Welcome. And I'm going to let you take it over and, and go from here. Great. Thanks, Becky. And thank you for the, the compliment. Um, welcome, everybody. It's, it's nice to be here today. And it's nice to share this research with you. If you're not as familiar with Chubb, we are the largest insurer of high net worth individuals in the, in the United States and, and in Canada. We have over 500,000 individuals um, as, as clients. So back in the fall, um, we, you know, of course, had all seen the news articles that, that you've seen, and it talked a lot about how all these people were moving and, the, you know, people were moving out of cities um, and they were moving into the suburbs and, you know, different cities were exploding in growth. And so we really wanted to understand exactly what was going on because we wanted to understand if our clients are, you know, the high net worth individual was moving at a faster rate. Were they moving to certain cities? What were their plans? Were they buying secondaries? Um, were they planning on renovating their home? We really just wanted to, to really understand exactly what was happening so that we could best serve our clients. So we went out, um, if you wanna to turn to the next page. So we went out and we conducted a survey of 600 individuals across North America, and we asked them a series of questions to really get at what exactly was happening with this group and with your, with your, your clients as well. Um, and so all, you know, the questions varied from, do you plan to do renovations in the next few months, um, to what types of, um, where are you buying your homes, why are you buying your homes, what's important to you in this new in your new home and the suburb that you're moving to. So we really tried to collect a lot of that data, a lot of those data points. But at the same time, we didn't feel like that was all the answers, that was gonna give us all the answers. So we also um, engaged uh, Bill Fulton here, who um, is an expert in urban planning and has a deep knowledge of cities and, and what, what typically happens with cities and in situations like this and will they move back um, so we really wanted to, to really get his insight on what he thought, what would be like a short-term trend versus what is going to be a long-term trend. Um, and so we, um, you know, worked with Bill, we put together this presentation, 
And we also offer this to all of our um, independent agents across the country that work with um, high net worth individuals so that they were better equipped and underst understanding of the trends um, and how they might be able to shift their business to meet these trends. So in talking with the DLN, we also thought that this was something that was very applicable to you since we share the similar clients and wanted to share with that, share this with you today. So um, I'm going to just read to you Bill's bio, Bill's bio because it's, it's, very, um, it's very impressive. And if I don't read it, I'm going to miss a lot of this, this stuff. So, so Bill is the director of the Kinder Institute of Rice University. He's the former mayor of Ventura, California and director of planning and economic development for the city of San Diego. He is the author of six books. He currently serves as board chair for Metro Lab Network, a national network of research partnerships between cities and universities and vice chair of Link Houston, a transportation equity advocacy group. Fulton holds master's degrees in mass communication from the American University and urban planning from the University of California, Los Angeles. So we um, have been thrilled to work with Bill over the past several months um, and excited that he's here today. So I'll go through the agenda and then I'm gonna turn it over to Bill to really get into the, the meat of the presentation. So today we're gonna to talk a little bit about how COVID-19 will change cities, how it's gonna change. We're gonna talk about what movement exactly have we been seeing We'll talk about what the long-term trends will be versus what is just short-term and we'll bounce back. And then we're gonna talk about how this impacts you, what some of the actions that you could take now to take advantage of all the movements that's happening. So with that, I'll turn it over to Bill. Thank you very much, Joanna, and good morning. Uh, it's a delight to be here today uh, and to be talking to you. Uh, I just wanna clarify, as Joanna indicated, I am not a designer, I'm an urban planner. Uh, I can talk, but I can't draw. Uh, uh, when I was in planning school at UCLA, the architects and landscape architects were upstairs and we were downstairs and I hardly ever talked to them. So, so bear that in mind as we move forward. I'm talking about large scale trends about cities and where people are living, uh, not about design trends, which is not my expertise. Um, we do know there's been a lot of talk over the last um, uh over the last year about how COVID will change cities. But the question is how, especially since uh, the way things are unfolding, the way, especially given the history of cities. We can go on to the next slide. Um, we can see that, uh, uh, you know, the difficult thing about COVID is that the very reason that cities exist, the very reason that dense human settlements exist is to be in close proximity to one another, as we see in this picture. Uh, we've had to adjust during COVID so that we are not in close proximity to one another. This uh, event is a good example of that. Uh, so things have really cleaned out. If you can move on to the next slide, people are a little scared of density right now. Uh, this is what downtown San Diego looks like these days. Not very busy. It's getting a little busier now. People are pretty afraid of being close to one another. So how is that going to affect cities and human settlements? And as Joanna said, how people and how how people live and how your clients are gonna to have to accommodate people in the future. If we can move to the next slide, I'm moving pretty quickly on some of these. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly with high net worth individuals of, of how they're basically dropping out, moving to their second home, moving to other locations uh, and working from there. And so I think the big question is, is this the new normal? We're not sure yet. And I'll, I'll go on to talk more about that if we can move on to the next slide. Um, 
So when all this is over, the question I want to ask is, how will cities and other human settlements be different than they were before? And the question I always ask about this picture is how in the world is she going to drink her coffee or her tea uh, with a mask on? Someday we will ba be back to, to not having masks, not yet. Uh, I'm at Rice University. We are required to wear masks at all times when we're not in our office, even outdoors still. And the Rice police stop us and, and, and give us a mask if we don't have one. So when all this is over, how will cities and other human settlements be different? Well, let's take a deep breath and look at the history of cities and how they have reacted and responded to pandemics and other disastrous events in the past. Going on to the next slide, if we can. As this slide suggests, cities have been around for a long time and they tend to last a long time. They survive floods, pandemic wars, and over time they've only gotten bigger and more important. And, and this is a bit extraneous to this talk, but, but cities tend to stay in place. And even though their uh, uh, focus and economic uh, uh, intent changes over time. So Boston, for example, over a very long period of time has basically gone from a whaling town uh, to a manufacturing center, uh, to a tech center, and now to the world's capital of high tech, uh, of, of higher education. So cities tend to be around a long time, they tend to change and adapt, and they tend to get bigger. Go on to the next slide. And there are two things about the histories of cities that I want to mention today as a foundation before I talk about some of the current trends. One is that cities have always bounced back from pandemics and often have adapted to become stronger. And I'm gonna uh, talk about that in a minute. And the second one is counterintuitively over the last 200 years, new telecommunications technology has always led to more face-to-face -face contact in the end, not less. Now that face-to-face -face contact may be different in nature, but it generally always increases. Go on to the next slide. And I'll talk about the, the most famous example of how a city bounced back from a pandemic or an epidemic, as you might say. Um, uh, in the 19th century, London was by far the largest city in the world. Uh, and at that time, of course, there was no indoor water or, water or plumbing. Um, <clears throat> and the cholera epidemic was uh, ripping in the 1850s through London uh, and threatened to destroy the city. There were thousands, tens of thousands of people who died. And everybody thought that somehow or other cholera was transmitted through the air. No one quite knew how, except there was one, this one guy, a physician, John Snow, and um, uh, that's him there. And he basically did an early version of what we would today call GIS or map layering. He made a map of all the cholera cases, and then he made a map of all the, uh, of all the water pumps because people pumped water from public water pumps at that time from public wells. And he figured out, as is depicted on the left, that it was, um, it was contaminated water from public water pumps that was spreading the cholera because some of those water pumps were in close proximity to human waste that contained the cholera uh, virus, the cholera. Uh, and, and in that way, he showed how, uh, how, cholera, was, how cholera passed and at, from one person to another and led to an entire revolution in public sanitation. Everybody assumed that cities were gonna get smaller and they were gonna be 
less robust as, as a result of epidemics like the cholera epidemic, that people would be scared. But in the end, we had this, we had this whole revolution in sanitation, centralized water uh, and sewer systems along with indoor plumbing. And that led to the ability to make cities bigger. And London, in fact, in the, in the, um, in the years after the cholera epidemic doubled in size. So that's one thing. Uh, the other point I wanna make, if we go to the next slide, as I said, is that um, cities have only become, as, as we have become more information oriented and as telecommunications has become important, more important, we have, we have tended to concentrate that information in certain locations. And so cities have historically become more important. And the example I give here is in the telegraph era in the 1850s, exactly the same uh, a time as the cholera epidemic, just a mile or two away. Um, uh, uh, everyone assumed that the telegraph was going to disperse human activity, just like we assume that, that Zoom is going to disperse human activity today. In fact, it concentrated knowledge and information. Oh, and, and when they put a telegraph into the, into the floor of the London Stock Exchange, all of a sudden that became the central point in the world where information about finance and capital flowed from. And, and London became the global capital of uh, financial capital, and it still is today. So, uh, so at the same time that cities have bounced back from pandemics, when we have used telecommunications more, cities have tended to get stronger and more important in the long run, which is kind of interesting. Um, if we can move, so that's a little bit of a historical background. I wanna talk about, let me talk about what's, let me just take a deep breath here and talk about what's really been going on in the last year, bearing in mind that in the long run, cities will probably come back and get stronger. Well, <clears throat> last year, you'll, not uh, you'll notice on the slide um, that there was a significant increase in, uh, in postal address changes, uh, but it was uh, mostly temporary workers. Many were 20 somethings moving back to their parents. It spiked at the beginning of the pandemic and then leveled off. And if you read the New York Times yesterday, there was a further analysis of, of postal service, post change of changes of address, which indicated that um, there's a big move out of New York and San Francisco, which I'll talk about in a minute, but other, but other trends have not changed that much. I can move on to the next slide. Because uh, um, one, of the th one of the interesting things is there's been a lot of attention. And as I said, this New York Times article yesterday only reinforced it that New York and San Francisco and big coastal, expensive coastal cities, Los Angeles too, and DC are, are losers and are losing population as a result of the pandemic. The fact of the matter is that large cities beginning in about 2015 or 2016 were already beginning to lose population and smaller cities with populations under 1 million uh, we're having a much bigger growth rate. And you see that with all this publicity about uh, um, Austin, Nashville, Miami cities, smaller cities like that gaining population, which is happening. So we had already, it accelerated the trend we had already seen of, of, of population stagnation in very large cities and significant population growth in smaller cities. Going on to the next slide. Um, this has had a funny effect on the real estate market Rents, generally speaking, in the big cities have gone down. Prices have gone up everywhere. Uh, this is a map from apartment uh, list, which shows you last year what happened to rents. Uh, blue means rents went down. Red means rents went up. And you can see the trend. You can see the pattern very significantly. 
rents went down dramatically in New York, Chicago, little DC, LA, San Francisco, and San Jose. Uh, they went up in lots of other places, uh, smaller cities in particular. You can see in the big Texas cities, I live in one of those, rents actually did go down, but not by as much. Uh, same thing for say Atlanta and Charlotte. Um, but generally speaking, the bigger, more expensive the city, the more the rents went down. The smaller, less expensive the city, the more the rents went up. If we go to the next slide, you'll see a little bit more detail on that, I think, if I'm remembering what the next slide is. Um, uh, yeah, we saw, we saw rents fall fast. I see this in these, uh, in these uh, coastal areas. You saw San Francisco and Seattle and New York especially. Um, a lot of times what people were doing is people who were living in small apartments uh, uh, in big cities that were expensive, especially if they had little kids and all of a sudden they were on top of each other what they tended to do was move, some of them moved to separate cities and I'll talk about that in a minute, but mostly they moved to the suburbs and bought houses uh, if, they were, uh, if, they, if they could afford them. We can go on to the next slide. Um, this is the most striking chart. I, I told you I went to planning school. I'm not a designer. I don't draw, I, make, I write and make charts. Um, this is the most striking chart that uh, we saw which was last summer, the difference in last summer from February of the net outbound movers from New York, 100,000 people left New York uh, in July of 2020 uh, after um, only, and that was an increase of five or six times over 2019, over, over 2019. This is a six month period, February through July of 2020 compared to 2019. It was a massive outflow from New York. And we saw the same thing in San Francisco, but we didn't see this massive outflow from many, in this big from many other cities. If we move on to the next slide. Um, at the same time, like I said, what happened was home prices and the number of homes sold were going up a lot. This is a long-term chart. This is a 60 year chart of the number of single family homes sold in the United States. You can see it goes up, up and down based on the economy. You can see it going way down uh, back around the time of the Great Depression, Great Recession, and then coming back up. But <clears throat> the really remarkable thing is way, way over on the right-hand side, you see this huge spike. And that's what happened during the pandemic, that the number of houses sold in the pandemic rose dramatically starting at the beginning of the pandemic and continued to go up. So we've seen this drop in rents and this massive increase in home purchases. Go on to the next slide. Um, and, and where have people been moving to? I'm gonna talk in a little bit about moving to separate uh, distant, look, distant cities, which what people have called uh, Zoom towns. Uh, but I, but equally important is they've been moving to what might be called Zoom burbs. They've been moving to places uh, uh, in, in suburban locations that have high amenity value um, uh, that are relatively close to cities, a place you would want to live if you want to be near a city, but you don't, uh, <clears throat> but you don't uh, have to go into the city every day. So this is Westchester County, North of New York, very high amenity, as you can see on the left. On the right, you see the home prices and the home prices shot up in the third quarter. And you see this, especially all over suburban New York. Um, uh, I think I, I read somewhere, and I'm sorry, I don't have a chart on this recently, that the city that has increased its population the most in metropolitan New York in the last year is Hudson, Hudson, New York, which is on the Hudson, high amenity city, 
north of north of New York. A lot of people from Brooklyn have had moved there already, <clears throat> and so we are seeing these very high amenity uh, suburban cities, uh, charming, uh, walkable. Uh, they are going at a significant premium right now as people come out of cities. I'll get back and talk about this some more. As people come out of cities and 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 try to find a place, a smaller, less expensive place where they can buy a house, where they can get more space, but they can still maintain some of those urban amenities that they like. If we could go on to the next slide now. And at the same time, we've seen a significant uh, increase in migration from these big cities to smaller cities, less expensive cities around the country. Here's a chart from, from Redfin showing you where people were moving to. Um, and you see the only really big city on, the, on, this, on this chart is Dallas. Uh, but you can see, I, I saw the chat to me from somebody from Santa Barbara. Hello, Santa Barbara my former neighbor, Santa Barbara has attracted a lot of residents during this time. That's Santa Maria, Santa Barbara means Santa Barbara County. But you can see Sacramento, which has had got a lot of Bay Area overflow. And then the trio of Nashville, Austin, and Miami, as I've said, three high amenity cities that are music centers that are attracting a lot of attention, particularly from tech workers. Um, <clears throat> so if we can move on to the next slide, just to give you a little more, more sense of the, of the trends. Um, we have seen wealth. We are seeing wealthy people move to uh, move to mountain towns, uh, Aspen, Jackson Hole, uh, Park City, Big Sky, Montana, Lake Tahoe. Uh, um, uh, my kids who lived in the Bay Area moved to Oregon because they got priced out of Lake Tahoe in a matter of days during the uh, during the pandemic. They bought they bought a second home uh, <clears throat> up in Oregon. <clears throat> but you see wealthy individuals who are able to move or buy a second home to live in during the pandemic are going to extremely high amenity places, extremely expensive places in some cases. Jackson Hole is, you know, what they like to say about Jackson Hole is it's where the billionaires are driving out the millionaires, right? So, so uh, they, these places are very expensive in some cases, um, but, they are, uh, but, but they are increasingly popular. And you see this uh, in other places around the West, as I will as I will explain in a minute, if we can go on to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> so, member Joanna said that Chubb did an, an did a survey of 600 high net worth individuals. Um, here are some of the trends that they found. 18% um, uh, uh, of all high net worth individuals are moving, and that's double uh, this the 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 that's double the the rate of the population as a whole. So you're more likely to see high net worth individuals move. Uh, on to the next slide. Um, you, interestingly enough, though, they are not all moving from one type of location to another. They are not if they live in an urban location. They're tending to move to another urban location. If they live in a suburban location, they're tending to move in a su another suburban location. And so, um, I would so I guess that underscores the point that people might be moving to smaller cities, but they are still looking for those urban amenities uh, that 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 I talked about. Go on to the walkability, access to things. Um, why are people moving? You can see a lot of people need larger, more space for a, for a home office. A lot of people are cashing out their equity in the in the in the big in the big cities, and a lot of people are just not uh, not work not needing to to work in a physical location anymore. I was recently in Bend, Oregon, which is where a lot of tech workers from the Bay Area are dropping out to. And you know, every extra bedroom in Bend is is filled with a tech worker 
who used to work on site in Silicon Valley. That's the kind of thing that's changing. Um, so we can move on to the next slide. And what are what what do people want? They still want to be in close proximity to work. If work comes to them, right? They don't. If if work can come to them, then they'll move. Um, they do want to have a safe yard for their family. So a lot of people moving out of apartments into the suburbs are looking for a yard. And interestingly enough, and this is an example of, of an urban amenity that's important, living near a grocery store is really important. So people are tending not to move uh, to like out into the country to rural locations. They're tending to move to different, uh, to smaller cities that still have the things that they found in a big city. Go on to the next slide. Um, uh, in a, and and uh, in addition to that, we, when we think about what kind of uh, what kind of insurance needs they might have, many people you can see plan to do renovations in their home. I think most people that I know of have done some kind of renovation in their home. Seventy-five percent are more likely now to age in place now that they if they have moved to a bigger house. Uh, so they need to help in making sure their home is accessible. That has that has certainly has design implications, and as they age, many of them are, are saying that they might want or could use live-in help, which again affects the design of the, of the dwellings that they're moving to, if we could go on to the next slide. So let me finish by giving you a few long-term trends about what I think is going to happen coming out of the, what we just talked about was short-term, here's what's happening now. Let me talk about some of the things that I think are going to happen in the long run. Go ahead. Go ahead to the next slide. Right now, close to half of US office workers are still working from home. And we saw that number gradually increase last year. You can see from February to May, it dropped from 75% to 30 some odd percent, dropped in half uh, the number of US workers working at home. That's come back a little by little. It dipped after the holidays, it's going up now. You can see it, that people are returning to the office. And, and, and my perception is, Companies want their employee their employees to come back. Employees don't really want to come back. Uh, if we can go to the next slide, um, uh, what we'll see is that um, in Manhattan, this is changing rapidly, but this is a, probably about right that about half of Manhattan office workers will be back by July. Manhattan, particularly Midtown Manhattan, which is the densest office uh, district in the country, has been pretty. Um, has been pretty pretty much of a ghost town. You can see probably half and half uh, in the summer and the fall. Our vaccinations are moving quickly, so that may accelerate, we're not sure. Go ahead to the next slide. Um, in the long run, my bet, so the big question is how many, what's the work from home uh, gonna be in the future? And my best guess is, you know, when people ask me for a very precise answer, I say most people will go back to work most of the time which isn't very precise, but I think what we're gonna see in the long run is some more people working at home all the time, but probably most people doing a three to four day week. And that might mean that they move a little bit further away from work, but they'll still be tethered to the commute to some extent. If we could go on to the next slide to talk more, talk about this some more. Uh, we asked people at Chubb asked people, uh, if the temporary work from home situation became permanent, if you could work from home forever, what would you do? And more than half of them said they'd move to a different home, presumably a bigger home, either in the suburbs or in another city. That's a big deal. 
Um, so that for the people who will work at home permanently, as I say, I'm guessing most people will not be in that situation. If you go on to the next slide and we'll talk about this a little bit more. Um, I think different types of settings will have different, it will have different impact. Um, the biggest question is what's gonna happen to downtown central business districts and big, big job centers, even if they're in the suburbs, such as the gallery in Houston, Century City in LA and others. And I, and I think that the answer is that they become less of a place where you go to type at your computer and do your work and more of a place where you focus on face-to-face -face interaction. That has implications for design. It has implications for what these business districts will be like. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I think what you're gonna see more and more is people will work Monday through Thursday, Tuesday through Thursday. They will gang in the office. They will gang all of their meetings during those days. There won't be any meetings on Monday or Friday. And work becomes a place where you go to, to have meetings, to interact, to brainstorm with others, to collaborate. Go on to the next slide. I don't think there's any question that we will see a decline in the amount of office space leased, um, particularly in downtowns and other job centers. And we will see an acceleration of something we've seen in downtown LA and elsewhere, which is a conversion of older office buildings to residential. I think there's gonna be a big source of work for designers in the next few years, um, as because essentially what's gonna happen is everybody's gonna move into a class A office space because that's gonna be cheaper. And the class B and C spaces, the 50 year old buildings are gonna, um, are gonna wither away <clears throat> and have no tenants. And many of them will be converted to residential. If we could go on to the next slide, please, to talk about this some more. Uh, Everywhere, including in the suburbs, bricks and mortar retail will continue to crash and burn. We've seen, we saw, and we've seen an acceleration of a trend we already saw, which was a, a transition from uh, from people going to the store to 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 home delivery. We're going to see that more and more. And your typical strip center is going to look like this uh, for the next two, three, four years. I think. Um, what's going to happen eventually? Well, uh, we go to the next slide we'll see a little bit about what's gonna happen, some ideas about what's gonna happen eventually. We will see bars and restaurants come back. They're gonna hollow out, but people are really hungry, so to speak, for restaurants and thirsty, so to speak, for bars. Uh, I think in the long run, uh, restaurants and bars come back stronger uh, and, can, and begin to take up some of that retail space. Um, uh, we see in, an increase in personal care uh, businesses such as yoga studios, nail salons, hair salons that will come into that space. And we may see, I'm not sure about this, but we may see an increase in co-working spaces, especially in those little retail centers in the suburbs near, near where people live. You don't go to downtown to the office every day or to a big job center every day, but for some reason you don't wanna work at home, you don't like to be around, you, you have kids at home, you got dogs at home, you need to concentrate. Um, I think we might see uh, an acceleration of co-working spaces, particularly in small suburban centers. In, in addition to that, I think in the big regional malls, I heard, um, uh, I heard a retail real estate expert say recently that at the, at the height of the, the regional mall uh, trend in the 1990s, there were 3,000 regional malls. By the time we're over with the pandemic, there will be 200 left. We will continue to see transition to large, uh, big box retail, but we will also see more and more uh, retail malls, torn, uh, regional malls torn down and replaced with mixed use or, or predominantly housing 
because those are big uh, pieces of land and they're well located. Go on to the next, if we can go on to the next slide. The big question is, there's two big questions here. One is how much will the work from home trend continue? I think the answer is some, but not as much as everybody says. <clears throat> the other thing, the other question is what lifestyle will people choose? If they can choose where to live, if they're not as tethered to the commute, where will they live? And I think the answer, uh, I've hinted at the answer before, I wouldn't go on to the next slide. Um, uh, most people, uh, uh, there's an assumption uh, that most people given a choice will move further out uh, to a bigger house with a bigger yard. And we've certainly seen that in New York and the Bay Area. Um, but that isn't necessarily people's preference. I think what's gonna happen is people are gonna be able to pursue their preference more, whether their preference is suburban or urban. So here at the Kinder Institute in Houston, we do a survey every year of Houston residents. Uh, this is for our Harris County, which is our core county. And we always ask them uh, uh, a question uh, uh, um, of, of, of something like, if you had the choice between living in a single family home on a larger lot in a distant suburb um, or living uh, closer in uh, where you don't have to drive anywhere, you maybe have a smaller house and you, you uh, uh, live in, um, uh, and, and you have access to urban amenities, which would you prefer? <clears throat> and every year, um, this comes up to be about 50-50, believe it or not, even in Houston, which is one of the most auto-oriented uh, places in the country. <clears throat> and I'm not telling, I am telling a tale out of school here. We expected this number to move this year. <clears throat> we have not re publicly released the results of our survey this year. We expected this number to move. We expected the single that the suburban single family preference to go up it did not this stayed the same this year i haven't we have not publicly released that yet we will release that in about two or three weeks but that was <clears throat> remarkable to me <clears throat> and it suggested that there are people who have um that a lot people have very different preferences and if they pursue those preference living preferences as opposed to being tied to their commute um, they, they, they will not necessarily choose the big house and the big lot in the auto-oriented suburb. If we can move on to the next slide, um, uh, this, you know, some people will choose this, this kind of a house. We'll move on to the next slide. Um, some people, but, but even if they live in that suburban house, and this is the point I made about people moving from Brooklyn to Hudson, they still want those urban amenities. This is, this is a picture of what suburbs look like today. This is Rockville, Maryland. And so even if you live in one of those houses, you're gonna to wanna to have access, maybe not walking, but a short drive to a place like this. We see this more and more all over the country. So I think in summary, like I said, I think the work from home trend will continue to some extent. Most people will go back to the work who work most of the time. And in addition to that, when people, when the pandemic is over, and people are not quite as tethered to their commutes and they pursue their preferences, some of those people will choose suburbs, some of those people will choose a more urban location. I do think it's a long-term trend that people will more often buy and spend more time at their second homes if they can afford it. So that's, I think, pretty much all I had to say. Um, I think that's the end of my slideshow. And with that, I will turn it back over to Joanna, thank you. We have a couple of questions before you turn it back over too fast. So 
Um, first of all, Josh Levinson is asking with more work from home and move to moves to uh, to suburban and re or remote locations. What do you believe will drive the conversion of urban class B office space to residential? Well, I think a couple of things will drive it. Number one is there won't be any class B office tenants. And so uh, then a building owner is going to have to make a choice. I mean, some of them will go way down market in the office space, right? There will be some of that. Um, <clears throat> but particularly in, in um, B and C office buildings that are, multi, that are 8, 10, 15 stories, demolition and replacement with something else is very expensive. And at that point, I think, um, at that point, I think conversion to residential becomes competitive. And as I said, with the, the overall demographic trends of our society have not changed. There are more and more households with one or two people and no kids. Apparently they all have dogs, but they don't have kids. Uh, and and uh, so I think that the demand for urban living won't go away, it will still be there. The great urbanist Richard Florida, who I've talked to a lot during this, keeps saying um, uh, uh, kids are still gonna wanna move to the cities in order to, because uh, the companies need them there to acculturate them in their, in their company culture. And also they move to the cities for mating purposes, right? And because the pool of people that you can mate with is, is, is so much bigger. So one of the things Rich says is that cities are likely to become younger. Uh, but I do think that this, this trend for urban residential and this conversion uh, of, we're gonna see mid-century office uh, buildings flipped, maybe even in midtown Manhattan. Um, uh, I, think, I think that will have, it'll take a few years, but I think that market is there. That'll be interesting because it's so dense in, in Midtown and no, there's not parks. There are a few, but not really. Right. And it'll be interesting to see what life is like that way. Um, okay, Jeffrey Bershot is asking the Fred slide. And I just, full disclosure, I got booted out for a minute. So I'm back, but I missed some of this, but I've seen your slide. So it's okay. This The Fred slide shows new one, one family houses sold approaching 1 million, yeah. a huge increase from prior year. However, this is still well below the early 2000s. What do you see in the next two, two to three years for volume of single family houses? I, yeah, I still don't see the volume uh, that we saw in the early 2000s because that was the bubble, right? That was, the, that was a subprime mortgage bubble. Um, we'll probably never get to that level again. There's a lot of concern around the country and within the Biden administration about the amount of housing being produced and how that has to increase. Uh, but there's upper limits to how much you can build, certainly. Um, there's only so many construction workers. There's only so much construction material before the price goes way up. So there's a limit. There's, a, there's, a, uh, there's certain limits on the amount you can build. I do think that trading of, of, of single family houses is gonna continue at a high level. Uh, as more people will move, I think, out of apartments and into houses for the next year or two, then I think it'll probably level off. I've got, I've got one more. Um, Magad Riyad uh, said, Bill, fantastic presentation and research. Any factoring of, of driverless cars into any of this research? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, and as we learned in Houston the other day, dri driverless cars aren't quite there yet. You know, there was a there was a notorious crash the other day here in Houston <clears throat> where two people were killed, were killed in a Tesla uh, because nobody was driving the car um, because they apparently they thought that it was a self-driving car. Um, I think self-driving cars are further off than we think. 
Um, but but what I think is potentially more important than, and, and paired with and more important than the self-driving cars is 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 uh, ride hailing self-driving ride hailing cars right so then that eliminates the need that eliminates the need for parking right um, if you're if if you're ubering and lifting around um, then you have the advantage of a car but you don't need to park it you don't need to insure it anything like that and I think that's very attractive to people who want to live in 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 urban settings where 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 that works um, uh, uh, Uber and Lyft are pretty expensive, even though they lose billions of dollars a year, they're still expensive to the average person. Uh, but the, by far the most expensive part of that is the driver, right? And if you can get rid of the driver, then a ride hailing becomes pretty cheap. And, and I think public transit is gonna move in the direction of what you might call Uber pool, more flexible, smaller vehicles and stuff like that. So, so I think there's gonna be this mishmash of all different Now he lost Bell. And, and of course, the denser the setting you live in, the more that's going to work. Uh, uh, and so I, I think that's probably, uh, that's probably where that goes. It's, it has less of an impact on the suburbs, suburbs but a big impact on urban settings. Um, I think Joanna has a few more slides, right, Joanna? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. just one wrap okay, up so I'm turning and then it we'll over, go to questions. Yeah, turn it over to you. So go ahead. Okay. Great, thanks. Um, so just wanted to wrap up the presentation before we, we, and we can answer more questions next, but just a little bit about how to take advantage of the opportunity. We can go to the next, the next slide. So here are the, the major trends that we saw through Bill's presentation and through our research. And also, you know, what we're seeing in, in the news, in the media. One is people are definitely moving to larger spaces and we're seeing that we're seeing that everywhere across the country, of course, meaning that um, you know people will be moving into these homes and making changes and making renovations, which leads to our second one, which is doing renovations. Um, we've seen this a ton in our in our book of business. Um, and I could not be here in good conscience today without saying to you that, when someone goes under renovation, it is the riskiest time from an insurance perspective. That's when you know rags combust and turn into fires. Um, so it is a very, very um, precarious time when, when people are doing renovations. So I just feel like it's my duty to say that. That just um, happened to one of our members. New cities. What's that? that? That just happened to one of our members. One of his projects, a painter left rags in a bucket, and that whole thing yeah. burned. Yeah, I mean, there was a terrible. lot of cement involved, so it was okay, but it was a big mess. So that happens all the time. Yes. Um, so, um, of course, you know, growth in, in new cities and people moving to these, these different areas that they weren't considering before. And then, of course, the, the virtual capabilities. And, you know, for us as a company, we've really had to shift as we do every home that we insure. We go in and we, we take account of what's actually in the home and you know, take pictures and write it all up. So, you know, as an organization, we've had to switch and get some new virtual capabilities um, in terms of that process. And then as also in terms of um, how we handle claims. So I'm sure in your business, you're also trying to figure out like what, what are some of the things that you can do? Because I think that the, um, or the research says that, you know, people are going to expect this moving forward. So making sure um, that your business is, is um, also considering that 
The one thing that I would say that we talked a lot about with our insurance agents that work with um, these high net worth clients is that research upon research and study upon study of people asking um, clients during this pandemic what they're looking for, they're looking for more pan, uh, communication. So that's something that we've said to our agents. But the communication really is key because the only way that you're going to know about these new purchases or doing, you know, st starting to do renovations is if that communication process is happening. So for, for example, for our agents, if they were used to communicating, you know, let's say four times a year, they've really tried to double that and do more email communication and more reach, more reach outs so that that communication line is open. And I share that with you. I'm sure you're already, you know, doing some of that, but I just think that that's one of the really key um, important takeaways that we learned through this whole process. So that's why I share it. And I'll turn it back to, to Becky. Oh, sorry, one more thing. <laughs> sorry, I forgot. Um, we built a resource center um, that you can go to and the URL is down the bottom and it's chubb.com forward slash great wealth migration. And here you will find all the st statistics from our study. Um, and uh, you also see, you know, a video from Bill and so forth, but everything is there. There's also a lot of different um, PDFs and articles all around um, this whole movement of the Great Wealth Migration. So I would encourage you to go there and check it out. Uh, we do have one more question. It's how are the, Cal and I'm actually curious about this too. How are the California fires and climate issues impacting home insurance premiums? Oh, that's a biggie, right? So, yeah. So if you look at what has been happening with natural disasters, um, over the past several years, there's definitely been, because of climate change, there's a lot more um, natural disasters happening, right? So in, in, in insurance companies historically um, have not considered all of those natural disasters in their, in their pricing because there was a certain number every year and now that's like double, tripled. So, so insurance companies are needing to look back and evaluate that. Um, and then you have different regulatory environments because the insurance, um, every state is different, right? And every state has different requirements of what they will allow you for rate increases and so forth. So a state like California is very different than a state like Illinois. Um, so you'll start to see some variations and you'll start to see carriers doing different things because of the natural disasters. And then also because of what the state will allow you to do to, you know, to protect your book of business. I'm sorry, I was muted. Um, this is all, I think, super helpful. I think it helps people understand more about what's going on so they know where to be marketing their businesses and where to understand where, where they have opportunities and how that's going to change over the next few years. And, you know, this all happened so fast and it could have been, it couldn't have been more opposite of what was trending before. So I think we all are best served by being super educated on this. So I really want to thank Bill and Joanna and the Chubb team for their thoughtful insights and work on this webinar. Uh, this migration of wealth topic can be a game changer for our members and partners in so many different avenues. So thank you for joining us. And next month's expert access will feature Douglas Friedman. Um, you know, the fascinator is how he's mostly known for every, to everybody. And House Beautiful's style director, Robert Ruffino, um, one of the lo longest um, working uh, editors 
I think maybe the longest working shelter editor, editor in the history of man. So pretty amazing. We all love Robert and Doug Friedman is um, going to be fascinating. So they'll be providing a deep dive and uh, of telling your story through photography, whether it's for your website, Instagram, or other, you know, media relations, media outlets. Um, registration can be found on the DLN website. And as always, we encourage you to bring your staff along uh, for the ride. Thank you everybody for joining us. And I'm glad everybody liked this so much. I'm getting all these comments that it's so great. So let's, let's stay in touch and maybe do something like this again as things evolve. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye, Take care.